The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are tuning in from remote locations, as well as listeners joining us on new radio affiliates in Washington, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Florida, and California. In just a moment, special assistant to President Obama and former ambassador to Russia, Mr. Michael McFall will be joining us to help us better understand why U.S. relations with Russia have taken a turn for the worse and what we might expect from Putin in the future. But before Mr. McFall joins the program, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Michael Anthony McFall was born in Glasgow, Montana, and grew up in Butte and Bozeman. He earned his undergraduate degree from Stanford University and did his postgraduate work at Oxford University. Despite offers from the Clinton administration, McFall resisted entering politics. That is, until he accepted the position of Senior Director for Russian and Eurasian Affairs on the White House National Security Council staff. Then in 2011, McFall was nominated and unanimously confirmed by the Senate as the United States Ambassador to Russia, a position he held until last year. Today, Mr. McFall is a professor at Stanford University and fellow at the Hoover Institution and Freeman Spogli Institute. He is also a popular analyst for NBC and has a book out titled Russia's Unfinished Revolution, Political Change from Gorbachev to Putin. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program the man the New York Times calls one of the leading Russia experts in the United States, Mr. Michael McFall. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. McFall. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, I thought uh, perhaps a good place to start might be a disturbing story that broke last week that known Iranian terrorist leader Soleimani violated the United Nations travel ban and went to Russia to meet with the Russian defense minister and President Putin. Now, this bold move comes in the middle of the U.S. trying to work out a nuclear agreement with Iran. When you heard this news, what were your first thoughts? Well, to tell you honestly, my first thoughts were, is this some clever way of uh, Mr. Putin trying to ruin the vote on the Iran deal here in the U.S. Congress? Because the timing was horrible. It broke U.N. sanctions, uh, undermining, I think, people's confidence in the the ability of the United Nations to to execute on those sanctions. Um, And if you think about it, that would be the perfect outcome for Mr. Putin, President Putin, because the Security Council has already been uh, agreed to, more or less. The sanctions will be lifted. Whether we sign up to the agreement or not, uh, the international community already has. Um, And therefore, for uh, a vote against the the deal to happen in the U.S. Congress, that would undermine American leadership in the world, right? So that would be a twofer for Putin. Uh, He gets the lifting of the sanctions, but he also gets the weakening of the United States. I'm probably, you know, they're probably not that clever. (laughs) You know, it's always easy to kind of over assign uh, very clever conspiratorial theories. But that was my first reaction, I got to tell you honestly. Um, if you had to take a guess, do you think this was Soleimani's idea, or do you think this was an invitation by Putin? Well, you don't go see President Putin without an invitation. Uh, you don't go to Russia without that. So obviously, he did it consciously. And the fact that he met with Putin, by the way, at least that's what the reports say, in itself is quite significant, because President Putin 
you know, he meets with heads of state and rarely meets with anybody lower than that. And he doesn't meet with a lot of head of states, by heads of state. So for the fact, the fact that he took that meeting, I think is significant. Now, you know, why they're meeting, Putin has always been um, upset about the sanctions. Uh, this, When I was in government, I heard him personally talk about it, how he thought that was unfair to Russia. And, you know, to be, to be clear, he had a point because when the sanctions went in place, the, the UN sanctions back in 2010, UN Security Council Resolution 1929, for those that want to look it up, um, uh, Russia lost uh, billions of dollars in trade. Uh, the United States lost nothing, right? We don't trade with Iran. We don't have economic relations. So uh, the Russians, back when I was in the government, complained that all the cost was on them, little cost was on us. And Putin has made it very clear that he's eager to get back into that game, to get back into trading with Iran and ultimately trading weapons with Iran. Well, as you point out, there's no question that Iran and Russia have a common enemy that has devastated both economies by enforcing these sanctions. And and many believe that this is what has forced Iran to the negotiating table, and it's also partially responsible for Russia's economy contracting nearly 5% in this last quarter. Now, you've made the point that Russia doesn't have the respect or, or friends that it once had, but uh, uh, but you know, shouldn't we be worried about a top military terrorist in Iran meeting with Putin and other Russian leaders and and then flaunting and violating this U.N. travel ban publicly? Absolutely. No, I mean, there's there's no excuse for it. There should be an investigation. Um, And, you know, I think it also, uh, again, just speculating, I mean, Putin obviously wants to weaken us. And they're following the debate in Congress very closely. There's nothing more that they would rather see than for the president of the United States. Let's leave out Democrats and Republicans for a minute, but for the president of the United States to agree to an international uh, agreement and then have his own uh, country undermine it, that's perfect for the Russians. On the Iranian side, uh, I think it's important for people to remember that there's an internal debate inside Iran about this deal as well. Uh, the conservatives, uh, including uh, Soleimani and the Quds Force folks and the IRGC uh, and those that used to back uh, the former president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, they all have come out criticizing this agreement. They say uh, all their red lines were passed, the, the negotiators caved, Secretary Kerry was really clever. I, oh, this should sound familiar, right? Um, uh, and they want to reject the deal. So, you know, and that group within Iran is is not eager to see this uh, deal go through. So one could speculate that that might be part of the motivation for challenging the regime, the sanctions regime in the way that they did. And we also have Putin reaching out to Syria. Yes, he's I mean, I, when I was in the government, I spent many years, frankly, tragic years. Uh, sitting in meetings with senior Russian government officials, uh, trying to come to some agreement about how the international community and especially the UN Security Council could take action to uh, help end that civil war. Uh, And the Kremlin's view, and Putin's view in particular, was always Assad's a modernizer. Assad is the best hope that they have and if he falls, uh, you know, everything will break loose and the radicals will come to power. Now, when he said that, you know, three or four years ago, our argument back, the, the Obama administration's argument back was right now things are relatively peaceful. If we do, a, you know, put pressure on them to transition now, we'll avoid those scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when nobody ever heard of ISIS or al-Nusra, right? These, these yes. groups came in only after. But unfortunately, um, we couldn't convince the Russians to go along with that strategy. And we, as an administration, decided that we weren't going to go forward without a Security Council resolution uh, behind us. You know, and in retrospect, I wonder if that was the right decision. 
Well, I think you make a good point. I think in retrospect, we most of us feel that uh, that probably wasn't the right decision. But again, as you point out, we didn't know about ISIS, and we didn't really have the intelligence that we needed. As as we don't in many instances, you have to make a deci- a timely decision, and you don't always have all the data that you need. Um, we have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. When we come back, we're going to find out how we went from the end of the Cold War to Russia's removal from the G8. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli. Where can people go to get Caraccioli Cellars wines? The best place is your computer and go to CaracccioliCellars.com and that's C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I, Cellars with a C. Or if you happen to be in the Carmel area, visit our tasting room in downtown on Dolores. We're also available in many restaurants. We're distributed in about 15 states and we direct ship to about 30. So there's a good chance that we can get it to your door. And I will tell you that the easiest way to get the wine is to go straight to the website. It makes it so convenient to have it arrive at your doorstep. I cannot tell you how many dinner parties I've had where even though you're not that far away from me, (laughs) I've ordered by mail so that the wine would arrive in time for my dinner party. And it always has. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea. Or find us online at CaracccioliCellars.com or reach us by phone 831-622-7722. Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, big data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. Hi, it's MZ. I want to share some really personal information with you. It's a fact that as we age, it becomes more challenging to do certain things that used to be much easier for us to do when we were younger. I'm 63 now, and I can't hop across the beach rocks that I used to do with ease 20 years ago. It's clear to me that at some point in the future, I will probably need help doing things I do with ease by myself today. My wonderful mom, Kay, is at that point now. At 30-plus years older than me, Kay is still able to give great motherly advice, just as always, and voice excellent radio spots. But she now needs some assistance doing things around the house and keeping her mind and body engaged. Thank God for Jackie Tucker and her wonderful staff at Care From The Heart in-home services here in Santa Cruz. In business for the past 18 years. Entrusting a loved one to the care of someone outside the family can certainly be a stressful experience. Not with Care From The Heart. Every associate is competent, professional, and sensitive as can be. What sets them apart is the prompt response when care is needed. If you or a loved one needs help, a little or a lot, at home or in an assisted living facility, I strongly recommend Care from the Heart in-home services. Call 476-8316 or online at carefromtheheart.net. Call 476-8316 or carefromtheheart.net. Please tell them MZ sent you. Care from the Heart in-home service will serve your loved one with dignity and respect. Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. They make food cheap by taking the food out of it and by making taxpayers subsidize its costs. Thus, the cheap food they promise is really the expensive food they deliver. To find true value, tune in KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down the real deal of food. If you have a comment about the third law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the food chain. What day was that?
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the former U.S. Ambassador to Russia and Special Assistant to President Obama, Mr. Michael McFall. Now, uh, Mr. McFall, many trace our current tensions with Russia to NATO. I believe uh, Secretary Baker negotiated an agreement with the then-Soviet Union that after the unification of Germany, NATO would not move eastward. And then, uh, you know, NATO said the agreement was no longer valid when there was no more Soviet Union, and and they did begin moving east. Uh, But as I understand it, you don't agree that that's the source of today's tension. No, I don't. Um, Now, I do agree that it was a contentious issue in the 90s. Uh, during the two big phases of expansion eastward and the allegations of what Secretary Baker said or didn't say, the Russians have focused on and said we were double-crossed. That's a long, complicated history, and and I I think they overstated what Secretary Baker said in these private meetings, but it's a contentious historical uh, period. I agree with that. And there's no doubt that no Russian leader was enthusiastic about NATO expansion. Uh, Yeltsin wasn't, uh, Gorbachev obviously wasn't before, and Putin wasn't. But the important footnote in between that old debate and today's debate was NATO wasn't expanding for many, many years. Uh, It wasn't a threat uh, after a while, after the the Big Bang, as they called it, uh, in 2002. And when I was in government, I was in government for five years, I attended or listened to every phone call but one or two between President Obama and Presidents Putin and Prime Minister Putin and President Medvedev, it never came up as an issue. I can't recall one time where either of those two Russian leaders were complaining about it. On the contrary, uh, before we came, before I came into government with the Obama administration, uh, the the alliance had agreed that they didn't want to expand NATO to Ukraine and Georgia in particular. Those were the at this very famous uh, NATO summit in Bucharest in 2008. That's what the divisions were about, and the alliance decided not to do that. And we didn't change that for for you know maybe we should have in retrospect, but that was not an option uh, because the alliance didn't support that. And interestingly. NATO and Russia during this period, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, called the reset, uh, they were cooperating with NATO. Yes. In fact, Medvedev showed up to the Lisbon summit, uh, the NATO summit, heads of state, president of Russia was there. I was there with him. I saw him. You know, I was part of the, the our delegation. And he said, this is a historic moment. We've put these differences behind us. Uh, you know, we've turned a chapter, we can cooperate. So you, you, can't, you need to explain that period of cooperation as well as the current uh, period of confrontation. And the same, you know, in the language of political science, the same uh, independent variable from the past, NATO expansion, can't explain those two very different periods in history. Well, then let me ask you a loaded question. At that moment in time when there was cooperation, uh, why didn't NATO seize the opportunity to invite Russia to join? Well, you're right. That's a loaded question. <laughs> it is a loaded question, but I got I got to ask yeah, it. That there was question. a moment there where, uh, because Putin has said the West can't have it both ways. On the one hand, yep. claim the Cold War is over and welcome Russia to the world of free global commerce, and yet on the other hand, NATO's going to guard, uh, you know, all the other countries, the European countries, from Russia. Which is yep. it? I mean, I mean, you know, you're sleeping at night with a gun under your pillow. What? what yep. Which is it? Well, my own personal view, uh, and in fact, I wrote this, uh, you know, three or four times in the 90s, is that the only kind of principled policy with respect to NATO expansion is to keep the door open for all European countries that meet the criteria of the alliance. And so I wrote that uh, if if Latvia, why not Russia, right? Um, and Does Russia also- meet the criteria of, of the alliance? Well, not right now. It doesn't. No, and but, but I mean, you know. I, I'm I'm going back to the restart. Well, that would have, and even earlier, I would say, you know, I think we missed the opportunity to build a closer relationship with between the alliance and, and Russia. I mean, the the Clinton administration did create something called the 
Russia, the NATO Russia Council, the NRC, to try to uh, build cooperation. But, um, you know, when, when Russia was moving in a more democratic direction back in the 90s, um, and this issue and many others, by the way, I would say, we did miss an opportunity to kind of bring them in. Um, and now it's become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of the debate, because uh, those that were against having Russia join, they say, well, look at Russia now. Russia is aggressive in Eastern Europe. Uh, it was very wise to expand NATO to prevent them from going into Estonia. And I agree with that, by the way. I think that's important to realize. But that's today. We missed an opportunity from a couple decades ago. I think we missed an opportunity also. Uh, and I also think that that would likely have avoided the situation in Crimea and the Ukraine. Correct. I agree. Yeah, because uh, as you point out, and I have this feeling, I, I'm nowhere the historian that you are, uh, but uh, as you point out, it feels a little bit like this uh, Secretary Baker promise that was or was not made about uh, NATO not moving eastward. Uh, it, it seems to be a recent story, almost a retrofitting or revisionist history in action. That's exa- That's right. And that happens a lot, by the way, in moments of confrontation People are living quietly together. I'm thinking of eastern Ukraine right now, right? For for decades, there was no conflict between Ukrainians and Russians. Then some more immediate, proximate uh, set of events happen, and suddenly we're going back centuries to talk about how they've always been at odds with each other. Um, and that's just not true. And, and here it wasn't true either. Just, you know, literally just three or four years ago, um, there was lots of cooperation between Russia and the United States. Uh, you know, we were running military exercises in Colorado together. I mean, I have the photos, that, you know, in, my, in a talk I give of, of Russians and American soldiers jumping out of planes together. I mean, that was just four years ago. So something more uh, approximate uh, caused this latest confrontation, not these older things that, like you say, are now being kind of retrofitted as the explanation for this current moment. Yeah, that happens a lot when uh, leaders are looking for, you know, a a good public relations story. They tend to go and connect the dots in a way that, uh, you know, they didn't really play out originally, but they sure sound like a logical story. You've recently said, and, and I believe that this is the uh, theme of your book is that you know this new era uh, crept up on us because uh, we did not fully win the Cold War, uh, and uh, and I think we did not fully win it. We didn't go all the way. We we did eighty percent of it, and twenty percent was there. We could have brought. Uh, we should have seized the moment, brought Russia into NATO, and uh, and there's only one other thing I can say to that. Thank goodness, I think, as I understand it, the Ukraine applied to be part of NATO like two or three times and was turned down. Thank good goodness they weren't admitted. Uh, we'd have a lot of trouble on our hands right now. A lot more trouble. That, that's right. Now we have to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out why the loss of U.S. moral authority abroad may be paving the way for Russia to push forward. You're listening to the cost. To report. Now, if you've been listening to the Costa Report, you know that I'm on the air each and every week for one reason. It's become very difficult to separate fact from unproven beliefs, and the media who we used to be able to rely on to tell us the difference, has become one of the worst offenders of all when it comes to making a distinction. But in addition to being on the air, I've written a book which explains why losing a grip on the facts is so dangerous. It eventually culminates in irrational public policy, something many of us worry about today. So I'm urging you to go to RebeccaCosta.com and get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle, an eye-opening book which, after the first few chapters, you'll be telling all your friends about. That's The Watchman's Rattle at RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now, RebeccaCosta.com. And remember, The Watchman's Rattle. 
Time for some fun in Scotts Valley. Hello, I'm Danny Reber, Executive Director of the Scotts Valley Chamber of Commerce. The Scotts Valley Chamber of Commerce presents the 16th Annual Art, Wine, and Beer Festival, August 15th and 16th at Sky Park in Scotts Valley. This year's festival has been totally revamped, rebranded, and expanded. It will include 18 wineries, delicious food, microbreweries, over 100 artists, live music and entertainment, a family fun zone, and as always, admission is totally free. It's time for some fun in Scotts Valley. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. The human brain is a gooey jelly four-pound mass that's responsible for how we process and perceive everything in the universe, and it's nearly 60% fat. And over the past several decades, we've learned that a type of fat called fatty acids are among the most crucial molecules that determine the brain's health and coherent functioning and its integrity and ability to do its business of navigating and creating the world and its body and habits. A couple of these fatty acids, called essential, are required for maintenance of optimal health, but they can't be synthesized by the body and must be obtained from dietary and supplemental sources. Developing brains are especially dependent on them, and babies who get their essential fats, which are found abundantly in breast milk, are known to have improved mental development and visual acuity. And the benefits of these essential fats are not restricted to infants. According to the Psychiatric Times, depressed adults who ingest essential fatty acids may notice mood elevation and an improvement in emotional symptoms. And an online article in the prestigious journal Neurology concluded that EFA intake by older adults is associated with a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease and slower cognitive decline. Because essential fatty acids in foods are unstable and break down rapidly, the best way to get your daily dose is by using a good nutritional supplement. Fish and shellfish or flax are the best sources of omega-3s and evening primrose or barrage oils for omega-6s. And the award for best all-around EFA-rich nutritional oil goes to hemp seed oil, which contains a perfect balance of omega-3s to 6s. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. This Sunday at 8 a.m. on AM 1080 KSCO, join Ken Michaels for America's top financial advice show, Mortgage Makeovers. Ken is the number one expert in mortgage lending, real estate, debt settlement, loan modifications, and credit repair. Mortgage Makeovers is brought to you by Onyx Lending, creating a totally stress-free loan experience. Contact Onyx at 844-GO-TO-ONYX or at onyxlending.com. Don't miss Mortgage Makeovers this Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former U.S. Ambassador to Russia and Special Assistant to President Obama, Mr. Michael McFall. Just before the break, I mentioned that uh, you pointed out that the U.S. has uh, lost some of its moral authority abroad in many ways. As we pull back, we create the opportunity for countries like Russia to push forward. So what's Putin's endgame, and how do we get this relationship back on track? I mean, what can we do? Well, those are tough questions. Um, with respect to the bigger issue of moral authority and the Russians, um, I think it's important for people in America to understand that, that Putin does see himself as a, a moral authority and counterweight to the United States and what he would call the liberal West. This is not just about geopolitics. This is not just some risk game you know, that he's playing in Eastern Europe of taking this country and that country. He believes that uh, the West is decadent, that the West has become too liberal, uh, and that it is against Russian values. That's his view. And, and therefore, he is going to be the one to uh, counter these, the influences of liberal values uh, around the world. Uh, that's his view. And he has spent time working with allies, including in Europe, including in the United States, to try to cultivate this, this conservative alliance. Um, uh, and 
the what happened in Ukraine last year, the collapse of the government there that he thinks thinks was inspired by the CIA, only uh, reaffirms his conviction that this is this is his mission in life for the rest of his time uh, in power. And um, you know, our failure to understand that I think it, uh, gets in the way of us engaging with him in an effective way. With respect to your second question, I don't have a good answer, to be honest. I, I think um, we can manage our differences. Maybe we'll, we'll be able to come to some resolution, uh, you know, uh, in eastern Ukraine. But I'm not optimistic about another reset or another kind of detente with Russia uh, anytime soon. Well, as you point out, uh, Putin has made a point of... Um, accusing the United States of cultural imperialism. Yep. And uh, and in fact, uh, there are many enemies in the Middle East that would agree with that. That's right. You're exactly right. In the Middle East, uh, some in China, uh, there's some parties in Europe, uh, you know, uh, more extremist right-wing parties that really admire Putin. Um, and, you know, he's trying to cultivate that that alliance. Now, it's also important to understand at the same time and using different people and different arguments, he also has been cultivating for years, this is a legacy of the Soviet era, the the anti-imperial leftist alliance, right? So uh, just as he has these relationships with right-wing parties in Europe, he also is trying to maintain close relationship with Venezuela and Cuba and, you know, in Latin America and Africa, talking about uh, American imperialism. Um, it's a kind of funky coalition, if you think about it. It is. <laughs> now, you've suggested that uh, Putin trusts chan- the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, and uh, um, she may be key to restoring relations with Russia. Can you help us understand why? What can Merkel do that, say, Obama and Kerry can't? Well, the first thing is that the economic relationship between Germany and Russia is much more important. You know, multiples of the uh, Russia-American economic relationship. Uh, Now, when I was in the government, we were trying to change that. We had a very conscious strategy to try to increase trade and investment between the United States and Russia. And we were moving in the right direction uh, until 2012. But then it, it's, it's stalled out, and now with sanctions, it's really stalled out. So, the, the, you know, from a very practical perspective, Putin needs to care about that relationship with Germany more than us. Second, um, uh, she's been on the stage for a long time with Putin. They've met each other, you know, probably dozens of times now um, in Europe, in Russia, around the world. Uh, she comes from a post-communist country. She understands those systems. Uh, Putin used to work in her country, uh, in East Germany, as a KGB official, so he understands uh, not only the language, uh, German, but he also understands the country. And she speaks Russian, by the way. Uh, So that's pretty interesting, right? Both of them speak each other's language. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, I think she has a pretty... Um, she's very pragmatic in the way that she deals with Putin and um, and Russia generally, and she's probably our best uh, interlocutor, if you will, from the West right now with him. Mm-hmm. And yet that's highly strained. I want to be clear. She's the best, but it, even that relationship is very strained right now, and the Chancellor supports sanctions. The Chancellor Merkel has made it clear that what Putin did in Ukraine is unacceptable. Uh, you, you just can't annex territory, right? That That's a concept from the past that we have no interest in trying to resurrect or make legitimate again. And we now see some uh, maneuvers in Georgia. Yeah, Georgia is very scary. I think, uh, you know, with everybody focused on Ukraine, there hasn't been as much focus there. And, you know, reports say that they're talking about annexation of, of uh, at least one of those two enclaves, South Ossetia, and even expanding the border. So uh, it's a tense time in the, in the Caucasus as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, you've made the point that the Russian people who are feeling the brunt of these sanctions are not necessarily all in lockstep with Putin. Um, a few months ago, I was speaking with Vladimir Posner from Russia, mm, and uh, yeah. and he said that during the Cold War, the Russian people had very little animosity toward America. In fact, America, everything from America was hip and cool, uh, their music, clothing, so on and so forth. But he says that today there's a growing anger and a hatred toward America from the Russian people themselves, not just the leaders, and that this makes the current tensions very different from the Cold War. Do you agree with that? I do, uh, in part, not fully. So uh, I think uh, Vladimir Posner is right about the the communist era, the Soviet era, that, that things Western were hip and cool. I lived there in the Soviet Union a, a few times when I was a student, and, you know, just being American made me cool, and having, you know, uh, American uh, goods, uh, you know, a Led Zeppelin cassette, <laughs> not American, that's British, but a Led Zeppelin cassette was a really popular thing to have back then, uh, or the doors, the doors were very popular back then, too, um, uh, and they that kind of um, admiration for all things American does feel different to me right now in part it's because they have more exposure to the united states we we were kind of this idealistic uh model because they didn't know uh, everything and now they know more they travel here it's not it's not such a abstraction they know they just have more information but having said that i also am impressed by at least in the larger cities educated people um you know, middle-class people in Russia when I was ambassador, despite the current tensions, uh, those people just want to live normal lives. They want to they want to travel to the West. They want to buy iPhones. They don't want to buy Russian cell phones. They want to, um, you know, w- work uh, in, a, in a place that has incentives for them to, to do better if they work harder. Uh, in other words, there's there's actually quite a few people that live in, in what we would describe as Western values, and maybe they don't admire the United States uh, as much as 30 years ago, but they don't want to go back to the past, uh, and they don't want to be cut off from the outside world. And that those isolationist uh, tendencies that you see Putin now enforcing, I think over time people are going to get tired of that. I, they were just in the press recently. They just, you know, bulldozed, I don't know, tens of, I don't even know the number, but lots of food from the West. People don't like seeing food being burned uh, when it could be fed to their people. Well, in particular, when uh, many of them are suffering uh, from these economic sanctions. As I said earlier, the economy of Russia contracted 5% in the last quarter. That's really got to be hurting the person on the street. We have to take our final break. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes. From salads to desserts, and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature. But human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand, and our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. 
Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org. If you're a man over 40 and can't stop going to the bathroom during the night, if your urine flow is weak, if you're using the bathroom more than your co-workers, then you have all the signs of an aging prostate. Prostate problems affect the majority of us men as we age, and often we ignore waking up one, two, or three times a night to go to the bathroom until either you or your wife had enough. I urge you to call for your risk-free bottle of GoFlow Prostate Formula. GoFlow Prostate is non-prescription and contains clinically studied ingredients that help to reduce waking at night to urinate. GoFlow helps to increase urine flow when you go and helps to stop it when you sleep. Best of all, GoFlow Prostate was developed by medical doctor Mitchell Fleischer. Call now, try it risk-free, and you'll even get free shipping and handling. Call 1-800-667-7068. That's 1-800-667-7068. This offer is available for a limited time in response to this ad. Call now. Don't wait. Call 1-800-667-7068. That's 1-800-667-7068. What happened is, you see, you've got a a beer bead. Beer. What? A beer beard. What? It's a secret bed. Somebody call 911. She's unable to speak. It's meant to be this beard, and you can hide a liquor in it underneath it. A beer beard. Yes. He, it's a secret beverage dispenser, so he opened it up and he's got a flying monkey in it. <laughs> it has D- listeners, don't worry, I have no idea what's going it on It has either. a flying monkey in it, so he, he started to wind it up and he broke it. <laughs> I, I, broke, I broke the monkey, Jenny. <laughs> He showed me how to. Jenny showed me how to do it too, and I broke the monkey. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best line in radio I've heard this year. I broke the monkey. (laughs) Don't miss Good Morning Monterey Bay weekdays, six to nine a.m. on KSCO AM ten eighty. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Mr. Michael McFall. Uh, You have a new book out titled Russia's Unfinished Revolution, Political Change from Gorbachev to Putin. And I wanted listeners to know that it is a fascinating look at Russia from many different perspectives, not only from a historical, political and economic point of view, but also from a cultural and psychological perspective as well. Uh, What I enjoyed so much is how you connected all these dots, uh, because as a sociobiologist who looks at the evolutionary basis of public policy, I, I can really mm. appreciate how complicated the truth really is. So in the time that's remaining, let's talk about the role that social science plays in foreign policy, because you looked at it from so many different perspectives, which um, I, I just kind of like to get into your head and understand how you approached this book. Well, the biggest thing I would say, the book's a little old by now because I was in the government uh, and didn't get a chance to write. But now I'm writing again. In fact, I have a new book coming out next year, and hopefully we can get together again and we'll talk about it. But um, I'd love to do that. I'll let you know when it's finally done. Um, I would say a bigger point, though, that you just provoked, which is um, something I noticed in the government and, uh, and I worry about now is the the lack of attention that our country has had towards training people to learn about the outside world. Um, uh, We're just, you know, when I worked at the National Security Council, I I dealt with Russia, but also other issues, and and I was just struck by the lack of expertise we have uh, on the Middle East, on Russia. Uh, You know, when the Arab Spring was happening and I was at the White House, we did not have people with deep cultural knowledge of Tunisia or Syria or Yemen. We had some. I don't, I don't want to make a giant generalization, but 
I think after the end of the Cold War, there was a sense in our country that we didn't really need to know about these things, right? History was on our side. Uh, everybody was going to become like us. And that proved not to be true. And we haven't devoted the resources to strengthening our social sciences and our humanities, too, by the way. It's both to understand places like Russia. And I fear that I saw it often. I just saw misunderstanding based on, you know, conflict based on misperceptions. Uh, now, Russia has a much bigger problem. They, they, they really didn't invest in their social sciences after the collapse of their country. And I would be hard-pressed to name three specialists on the United States, right? Russians. That's bad. Uh, that means that Putin's not getting very good information about us. That means that there's not a very sophisticated debate about the United States uh, in Russia. And in the long term, that, that hurts our bilateral relationship. And it's, it's especially striking to me because I just spent a month in China at Stanford Center there. And I was amazed at the resources that they are devoting to these very issues. Um, I went to one center, a government-sponsored, you know, supported center. They have 100 researchers on Russia. 100. Uh, there is no place in, in the country here in the United States that we have, a, you know, five researchers are in Russia, let alone 100. And yeah, most but, but we not. have you. But I'm one person. We have we, we have you against that. Those, we, we, <laughs> hey, hey, we're we're pitting you, our best and brightest, against those hundred. But even here, <laughs> if I if I can be self confessional here, you know, I teach at Stanford University. It's a pretty good university, and yet we're not training people uh, to be specialists in Russia and the Middle East and China and in in the ways that we should. So I think it's a challenge to our country to understand this is not just kind of, you know, the government, the federal government has cut research money uh, for the, these kinds of things. People say we don't need to be doing this kind of research. And I think that's a very short-term perspective that could hurt our long-term national interests. Well, it is hurting our long-term national interests and certainly hurting our foreign policy. You can't have foreign policy without understanding uh, foreign culture and history. History. I uh, I, there's a sort of a, I don't know, whenever I'm wash, in Washington, D.C., I, I just have this feeling that people don't know the histories of the countries they're dealing with. It's a pro- I, I agree. I mean, you know, I spent five years in the government and um, never had been in the government before. And when I'm asked what were the the most useful things that I learned in academia that that helped me in my job, I always say, one, history, and two, knowing a foreign language, uh, for me, Russian. And those were really valuable uh, tools to me that are underappreciated both in the academy and in Washington. Absolutely. And then I just add one more to that, and that is, uh, hey, live abroad for a little while. Anywhere. Just you know, step outside yeah. of the country and live overseas for just a short while, and you really do get a different perspective. Now, before we run out of time, do you have a website where people can get more information about your writing and your activities? Yeah, I mean, you just Google my name, and I have a dozen websites all over the place. Uh, or Google uh, the Freeman Spogli Institute, FSI. If you just Google FSI, I'll pop up, and you can find all my writings, all my interviews, all my book links. Or follow me on Twitter, at McFall. Uh, I, I got onto Twitter because I was told to when I was ambassador. I'd never seen Twitter before then. <laughs> I saw you on Twitter, by the way. Uh, and um, it's, it's become, for me, a way to keep uh, connected to uh, people in Russia and kind of keep a virtual debate about U.S.-Russian relations going. So Absolutely. Uh, if you're interested in that, follow me, uh, at McFall. We live in a Twitter world, and uh, some of us, based on age, had to get drug into that world. But yep, I'll tell you, too. we're yeah, we're on Twitter constantly as well. Well, that is all the time that we have left. But before we say goodbye, I do want to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. McFall. Thank you, and thanks for having me.
If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Michael McFall today, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter. Yes, we're on Twitter, <laughs> LinkedIn. And if you missed the full interview with McFall or any of our other previous guests, remember you can download any episode of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our dedicated YouTube channel. Our team's done a, a wonderful job of keeping five years of interviews with some of the most memorable people in the world online. So when you get to the Costa Report webpage, just scroll down and pick a guest who uh, you might suspect the media has interpreted on your behalf and listen to what they have to say firsthand. Why not? Uh, Once you hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, you might be surprised. (laughs) And while you're at the website enjoying a refreshing, intelligent, politically neutral exchange with a leader, uh, take a moment to get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. This is the only book that connects the dots between how fast change is occurring all around us and how this sets the stage for unilateral collapse. And isn't that something you want to know about? (laughs) Don't you want to know what what symptoms to look for? According to Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, we're producing as much data every two days as we did between the dawn of humankind in 2004. So just imagine for a moment the minuscule subset of available information on which we're basing important decisions. So is it any wonder that public policy is becoming irrational and leaders are continuously reversing themselves when they discover new data? So if you want to know what three stages to look for prior to the collapse of any civilization or government, uh, grab your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com, click on the Buy button, and it'll take you straight over to a page where you can request a custom dedication and autograph and while you're there hey pick up a copy for a friend because 100 percent not 90 or 99 percent 100 percent of what's earned from book sales goes toward keeping interviews like the one you heard today on the air 52 weeks a year the costa report is completely self-funding the way media should be and this is what allows us to do the kind of unbiased in-depth reporting that you used to expect from the mainstream media, but which business interests have clearly taken over. So if you liked what you heard today, you feel like we provide a good public service to you every week, then do your part. Keep independent, politically agnostic journalism alive. Get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Go to Rebecca Costa, that's my name, dot com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Now, Speaking of excellent journalism, my guest this week, uh, this next week, is one of our nation's most acclaimed legal scholars and experts on the Middle East, Mr. Alan Dershowitz, will be here to lay out the case for and against a nuclear agreement with Iran. Don't miss Alan Dershowitz next week on the only weekly news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to The Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 